Please open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. And Lord willing, we'll be able to go through the whole chapter tonight. Hebrews chapter Hebrews chapter 8. So as I prepared this sermon, I was quite struck with how similar Hebrews chapter 7 is to Hebrews chapter 8. And because of that, I was actually a little afraid to preach this sermon because I was thinking, what if I just say the same things over again? I mean, you can just scan over Hebrews chapter 8 and then just remember what we said about Hebrews chapter 7 and just go back. And, and you'll see that there is such similarity. But as I started to become afraid and, and started to think, what if this is just a horrible sermon? <laughs> I started to remember that God is the author of the Bible, not me. My job as his messenger is to proclaim his message and not just my own. And so if God made Hebrews chapter 7 and Hebrews chapter 8 very similar, then so be it. That is what God has done. And it's also, I think, that sometimes we have an irrational fear when it comes to repetition, that we revolt against repetition. We want, we want newness. We always want some kind of new idea. But if you think about it, the Bible is full of repetition. Let's recap a little bit. You remember Joseph's dream from this morning's sermon. How many times did he have that dream? Twice. Pharaoh, which is the dream that Joseph interpreted, and that's how he became elevated. How many times did Pharaoh have the dream? Twice. Has anybody ever noticed how similar First and Second Chronicles is to First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings? Anybody ever seen that? Well, think about the Gospels. How many Gospels are there? There's four. Okay, and that's why a lot of the uh, heretical groups didn't like four, so they reduced it down. They made a harmony and made it into one. But of those four, three of them are very similar. It's called the synoptic problem, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Very, very similar. And then you have John that's a little bit different. So why do we have four gospels, or at least three synoptic gospels, instead of one? Well, this is kind of like when Jesus says, verily, verily, or truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say unto you. What is that? What's the purpose of him doing all of this? Well, I want you to consider a glorious uh, gospel presentation s- s- hidden in the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah 27, 2. Hear this gospel presentation and see if you can find the repetition. Isaiah 27, 2 says, In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would I had thorns and briars to battle, I would march against them. I would burn them up together, or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. Why the repetition? Why is the Bible full of repetition? Why is the book of Judges just this continuous storyline where the people of God rebel? Then they cry out for help. God sends them a deliverer. And then immediately after they're delivered, they only go back straight back into rebellion. Why that cyclical motion? What's the point of all this? Well, before we jump into text, we'll talk about it real quick, and then we'll get into Hebrews chapter 8. So, Why the repetition in the Bible? Well, there are multiple reasons. Here's the first. Repetition is the key to all learning. The way that we learn is by repetition. We have to go over and over and over. Any parent, any teacher knows this. Anyone who's ever tried to teach someone something, you teach them something one time, you go back and they forgot it. So then you have to teach it to them again. And then you have to teach it to them again. And the Bible is given to us as to be our teacher. It's to drill in God's word into our hearts. Parents, there's a verse that you should know, and really 
beyond just being parents, if you're going to be a parent or if you have any involvement with any children, which you should in this church, you should have this heart memorized or at least put in your heart. So Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is God's instruction for parents of how to instruct their children. Consider the words. Deuteronomy 6, 6 to 9. All these words which I command you today shall be in your heart, so you should have it, and it should be deep within you. Why? And you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk to them, talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as signs on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So how often should you instruct parents, your children, about Jesus? Just at mealtimes? Just on Sundays? Just when you feel like it? Or in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening, and every time in between? As you walk out to school and as you come back, as you wake up in the morning and as you go to bed all the time. Why the repetition? Why? Because God wants these children that he's given to you to be instructed in the ways of the Lord. And he knows that repetition is the key to all learning. I want to tell you a story. Just yesterday, my mother-in-law came to my house. She wanted to do a kind act to me. She wanted to shampoo my carpet, which I really did appreciate it because it definitely needed shampoo. And for some of you who've been over there, you know that. So she went over and shampooed, and I had to leave, and her car was parked behind my car. And it usually have a two-car parking lot, but now it's half the parking lot's full of snow. So it's a one-car parking lot now, and I couldn't get out. So I asked my mother-in-law, can I use her keys so I can back her car out and then back my car out and put her car back in? Okay? So she hands me the keys and says, oh, by the way, this is a manual, not automatic. This is the thing with the stick and the clutch, and you go like this kind of thing. Okay. So she hands me those keys and says, this is a manual. And I think, I haven't driven a manual in about nine years. That was the last time I had driven a manual. So I'm like, I kind of get the concept. There's a clutch, there's a stick. I can't really remember what reverse is, but you know what? I'll give it a go because I used to drive this. So I put in the keys into the ignition, and my foot found the clutch. And I was like, which foot? It found it. It activated it. How many times do you think I stalled? I had to go back, forward, all over. How many times do you think I stalled? Not once. I didn't stall a single time. How? I haven't driven a manual in nine years because it was ingrained in me, because of all those repetitions, because my first vehicle was a manual. And I had driven a manual for, my motorcycle was a manual, my first and second vehicle were manuals. I've driven thousands of miles with manuals. So even though I hadn't driven a manual in about nine years, it all came back to me because of that repetition. And so why, is, why does God have so much repetition in the Bible? Because he wants you to meditate on God's word day in and day out. And he wants it to be so that even if you haven't read that passage recently, think about if a Jehovah Witnesses knocks on your door and says, did you know that Jesus Christ is the greatest being ever created? And you think, that doesn't sound right. I've been reading my Bible. I've been going to church. I've been inundated with God's word. And so all of a sudden, you remember all these passages, like John 1, that taught you about the deity of Christ. Aren't you glad there's not just one passage about the deity of Christ, but there's dozens, and that you can continue to point to them? I know what you're saying is not true, and here's 15 verses that say why it's not. And it's the same thing. God gives us multiple passages so that we can be prepared in season and out of season, and so that we can learn God's truth. The second reason why God gives us 
uh, repetition is for emphasis. It's the Bible's way of emphasizing something. When Jesus says, verily, verily, it's like him saying, listen up, pay attention. What I'm going to say is very important. The reason why First and Second Chronicles repeats the events of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, is that's the way the Bible is indicating to you that the history of Israel is actually pretty important. See, we might think it's not that important. Let's just get to the New Testament. But the Bible itself repeats this story twice. And it's trying to tell you the history of the failure of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah is actually kind of important because that's why Jesus needs to come because they failed. And so we might not be that interested, but God is telling you, exclamation mark, this is important, take note. The same reason is why we have four gospels. Just think about this. Who's the most important person in the Bible? Well, God, of course. But God is also triune. But as far as a human being, who is the most important of the human beings? Yes, he's a God, man. It's kind of cheating. But still, who's the most important person of the Bible? It's Jesus. And if anyone wanted to debate that, I would just point out that his story is told four times. Nobody else even comes close. The emphasis is to show you the importance of the material. When you want to reiterate something, you emphasize it and English, we underlined it or we bold it. In Greek, they said it multiple times. A very deep pit was called a deep uh, pit pit. When God's holiness wanted to be emphasized, he was called holy, holy, holy. Because he's not just a little holy. He's maximally holy. And that emphasis, that repetition is to give us emphasis. When you think about Peter, and as he betrayed Jesus three times, Jesus didn't just say, do you love me, Peter? But he repeated it. Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Then feed my lambs. Do you love me? Then you feed my sheep. So repetition is for emphasis. Repetition is the key to all learning. Another reason we have repetition in the Bible is because there's something wrong with us. As the famous hymn writer once said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. How often have you listened to a sermon or read God's word and felt empowered and emboldened and strengthened from God's word only to feel deflated the next couple days later. We need God's repetition because we often are like a leaky tire and as soon as we get pumped up, the tire starts to, and the air starts to go out the other direction. So we need repetition because we constantly need filling because we're constantly emptying. And fourthly, we need repetition because we, when we look at multiple repetition, we actually discover that oftentimes it's not saying the exact same thing. That you have this repetition, but Matthew is saying something a little bit different than Mark, which is saying something a little bit different than Luke. That there's different emphasis. Or as Spurgeon said, it's like the gospel is like a diamond. And as you move it around, you can see various angles and various lights in that gospel. I'll give you one quick example. In Second Samuel 24.1, we read this. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he, so no, he, God, moved David against them and said, go number Israel and Judah. So we get to the big sins of David. One of the big sins, obviously, Bathsheba and Uriah. But the second big sin of David was this incident in 2 Samuel 24, where he goes out and does the census. But strangely, in 2 Samuel, it says that God wanted to, uh, his anger was aroused against Israel, and so God moved David against Israel and caused him to make a census. Now, this is a major theological problem because James says what? 
God tempts no man with evil and himself cannot be tempted with evil. And yet this text seems to say that God did the very thing that he says he never does. Namely, he tempted David with evil. And it actually seems like it says that he caused David to do evil. Well, in 1 Chronicles 21.1, the same incident, the repetition, the same incident says instead of God, it says, now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. And so having multiple times this repetition, have multiple instances helps us to put it all together so that we can have a better picture of what God is saying. So quickly, just as a reminder, there are four reasons we have such repetition in the Bible. The first reason is that repetition is the key to all learning. The second reason is that repetition is for emphasis. The third is because we are prone to wander, and so we constantly need to hear God's word. And then fourthly, repetition are often complementary to one another, and they provide additional details to each other. In the words of 2 Peter 1-2, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing shortly I must put off my tent, just as the Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have remembrance of these things, even after I depart. So what Peter is saying is this, I'm not going to shrink back from reminding you of things because I'm not always going to be here. And I want you to be able to recall these truths even when I'm gone. So flip over again back to Hebrews chapter 8. Why is it that Hebrews 8 reiterates basically the same things of Hebrews chapter 7? It's because of those four points that I just mentioned. Because he's trying to really get you to see something very important about Christ, namely his high priesthood. And he really wants you to get that into your brain. And so that when you think about Christ, you don't just think of him as reigning and ruling in heaven, which we often do think of him. And there's nothing wrong with that because he is reigning and ruling in heaven, right? He's at the right hand of the Father. But he's not just reigning and ruling in heaven. He's also functioning as our high priest and doing priestly functions up there. And so how often, if we're honest, when we think about Christ, do we see him at the right hand of the Father and see him not as the son of David, but really as the great Melchizedek, the eternal priest of God? I know certainly I don't think of that that often. And I think this is one of the reasons why Hebrews 7 is repeated in Hebrews 8, because he really wants you to get that point. So let's go ahead and read the passage. Hebrews chapter 8. Now this is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since these are priests who offer gifts according to the law, who serve the copy in the shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises." So right there up front, the author of Hebrews tells us what he's been saying all the way, all the way out 
through chapter 7. And what's his main point? Now, this is the main point of what we're saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. The main point is this, that Jesus Christ is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is both priest and king, and he functions in that way in heaven. Now, the, the significance of this, he's going to then flush that out. What does this mean? What does it mean that we have this great high priest? Well, the first thing he wants to do is tell us something about high priest. What do high priests do? Well, verse 3 tells us what exactly high priests do and how that applies to Jesus. Look at verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that this one have something to offer. So, fundamental to the high priestly ministry of Jesus is having something to offer because you don't have a high priest who has nothing to offer. High priests make sacrifices. High priests make, uh, give gifts to God. And so the earthly high priests had earthly sacrifices where they were sacrificing lambs and goats and things of that nature. And Jesus Christ also had something to sacrifice, namely the perfect lamb of God. Now this is where it gets a little strange or a little interesting. Jesus, the high priest, has something to offer, but that offering is that perfect lamb of God. Now, who's the perfect lamb of God? The high priest, Jesus, offers. Remember John the Baptist? What do you say about Jesus? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus offers as high priest the lamb of God, which is also himself. And so what we have here is a picture of the ultimate demonstration of self-sacrifice, self-sacrificial love, where God ultimately became a man and died on a cross to save sinners like us. Some of you might be into war movies. I'm not really into movies, but some of you might be. And in war movies, there's often a very famous scene where a grenade is chucked in. A bunch of troops, battle buddies, fighting the enemy, and there's a live grenade. You know where this is going? What does the hero, the protagonist, do when that grenade comes? He doesn't usually kick it. He doesn't usually pick it up and throw it back. Some action movies are like that. He doesn't shoot it with a gun, which would be really stupid to do. What does he do with that live grenade? He jumps on top, right? He jumps on top of that grenade. He takes the wound, and everybody walks away saved. And we all look at that man as a hero. Why? Because he sacrificed himself for others, And we see something beautiful in that. Well, this is all a picture, ultimately, of the true hero, which Jesus is, who sacrifices himself for our sins. And he rises from the dead for our justification. So just as human priests have something to sacrifice, so Jesus Christ has something to sacrifice. Verse 4 then continues explaining Jesus' ministry. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since These are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. This is, again, very similar to what we see in chapter 7, that according to the law, priests were only supposed to come from the Levitical priesthood. But Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. So if according to the law, Jesus would not be a priest. Now, specifically in verse 4, it's probably not emphasizing his genealogy there, but it's probably emphasizing the fact that the thing that he had to offer. Priests don't offer themselves. Priests certainly don't offer the Lamb of God. They offer just regular sheep and bulls and pigeons and things of that sort. But Jesus, because his priesthood is not from the law, can do and offer something that the law never prescribed, namely 
the offer of the Son of God. He can do that because he is not bound to the Mosaic law. And so what God did, it was his eternal purpose in Jesus Christ to save sinners from the foundation of the world. This was God's always his plan to send Christ to accomplish that redemption. Then we're told something, we'll continue to contrast in verse 5 about the difference between Jesus' priesthood and the Levitical priesthood that was merely a type and a shadow and a typology of that greater priesthood. Look at verse 5 with me. These priests, Levitical priests, serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things as Moses divinely instructed when he was told to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. So what we have here is going back to the beginning of the creation of the tabernacle and the creation of the priestly order and what they were supposed to do, that the author points back that when Moses was doing this, we see when he was creating this system or given this system, it was merely a type and a pattern of a greater heavenly tabernacle and a heavenly priesthood. Now, really, if you think about this, you can gloss over this, but it's really mind-boggling to understand what this is saying. So what this is saying is that the earthly priesthood that you see all throughout Leviticus is a earthly picture, is an earthly type of a heavenly reality. That's what it's saying. So just as there was a tabernacle on earth, so there is a tabernacle in heaven. Just as there was a high priest on earth, so there's a high priest in heaven. Just as there was gifts and offerings that needed to be done on earth, so there are gifts and offerings that need to be done in heaven. Again, I can't tell you all that this means, but I can say this. We often think of the heavenly realm as just this floaty thing that doesn't really exist or has weird things and, you know, weird objects or something like that. But it really doesn't seem like that. It seems like there's some tangibility there such that that there can be a type here on earth, that there was a type here created on earth that was a pattern of this heavenly reality. At the bottom line is this, what we should not do is make the earthly one, the real one, and the heavenly one, the figurative one, that one that doesn't really exist. That's exactly the opposite of what the author is saying. He's saying that the earth is the shadowy type one, and the real one is the one in heaven. And that's why Jesus Christ is so much more superior, because he's not playing with the fake earthly type of shadows and types, but he's fulfilling the reality the one that is in heaven, the true tabernacle of God, the one not made by earthly hands, but made by God himself. And I do certainly look forward to finding out exactly what's there and how it works and all the things that are going on in that temple. Now look look at verse six. Here's the point that he's pushing at. You're supposed to come to this conclusion when you realize that Christ is serving in the heavenly tabernacle, which is so much greater than the earthly tabernacle. And what's the conclusion? Verse 6. But now he, Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. What's the conclusion? that Christ is much greater than these earthly high priests. His ministry, which again is very similar to what he said in Hebrews chapter 7, is so much more superior to those earthly types in shadow. He is the substance. They are simply the picture. And why is that? Because he is the mediator. He's the in-between of a better covenant, namely the new covenant, which is established on better promises. Now, it's very important. The new covenant is not just a continuation of the old covenant. Do you see that? He's not saying the new covenant just goes on top of the old covenant, like the Davidic covenant just went on top 
of the Mosaic Covenant. Well, the Mosaic Covenant, in some ways, just went on top of the Abrahamic Covenant. No, he's saying that there's something fundamentally different and something fundamentally better about the New Covenant than the Old Covenant. And that fundamental difference is Jesus. He is the guarantee, he is the surety, he is the guarantor of the betterness of the New Covenant because his ministry is better because he actually accomplished the things that the Old Covenant could never do. And that's why he says that this better covenant, the new covenant, has better promises. What are those better promises? The old covenant could not take away your sins. The new covenant can. The old covenant could not reconcile you salvifically with God. You could just be externally his people, but you could still be his his people and go straight to hell. In the new covenant, if you're his people, you're going to be with him on the new earth where God says that man and God will dwell together. Don't just take my word for it. Look at verse 8. If you ask the author of Hebrews, how is the new covenant a better covenant established on better promises? It comes right after he says it in verse 8. He says this, because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. So there's an old covenant, and it was faultful, and that's why he says, one day I'm going to make a new covenant, which is a better covenant established on better promises. And what are those better promises? Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, saying... Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. How is the new covenant better than the old? Because it has better promises. What are those promises? Well, I will put my law in their hearts and in their mind. This is regeneration, but it's really possibly, I would suggest, even more than regeneration, because this seems to be a New Testament reality where we as New Testament believers receive a greater fullness of the Holy Spirit than Old Testament saints. And if you question that, this is why Jesus says in John that you right now, the Holy Spirit is with you, but one day he will be in you. And that's exactly why in Acts chapter 2, who were waiting for the Holy Spirit to be poured out and received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? The original disciples, Peter, all of these, Peter, Andrew, all these various people, the apostles, they were waiting for the fullness of the Spirit. And when he was poured out in Hebrews, I mean, in Acts chapter 2, they received him, were baptized by the Spirit, and received the fullness thereof. So that's what I think is being referred to here when it says, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. Old Testament saints did have regeneration, but they did not have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit like we do, because that was waiting for Christ to earn that and pour it out on his church, according to Acts chapter 2. What else do we have? It says, none of them shall teach his neighbor and none of his brothers saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. Now, I've heard very strange interpretations of this saying that in the new covenant, there will be no need for teaching. There will no need for instruction. We'll all be perfect theologians. But that is, in my opinion, a sloppy reading of the text. It doesn't say we will not need any teachers. It says no one will teach his brother saying, know the Lord. 
for they will all know me. It doesn't say nobody will teach his brother about extra doctrines or, or these various uh, teaching ministries. It's nobody will need to evangelize his brother saying, know the Lord, for they, all, they shall all know me. Why? Well, because they'll all be saved. Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. You won't need to teach your neighbor saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least to the greatest, their sins will all be forgiven. This is radically different than the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, you could have someone in the Old Covenant, and yet you would have to evangelize them because they would not know the Lord because their sins were not necessarily forgiven. So what we have here is that the better covenant on the better promises is that Jesus Christ accomplished everything that was merely pointed to in the Old Testament, that Jesus gives us the fullness of the Spirit, Jesus regenerates us, Jesus forgives us of all of our sins, he wipes our slate clean. This is the better covenant and the better promises that we have in Jesus. Now, quickly, as we wrap this sermon up, so if we have this better covenant with better promises, what happens to the old covenant? What happened to that Mosaic covenant that God established all those many years ago under Moses? Well, look at verse 7, and we get some clues, and then we'll conclusively see it in verse 13. In verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 8, it says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. So the first thing we find out is that there was faults in that covenant. The covenant itself was given temporarily in the words of Galatian. It was a schoolmaster. It was preparing the people for God. It was to keep the people until the seed came. So the old covenant was never intended to bring in all the things that the new covenant brings in. It was just a placeholder until Christ, who the promises were given, could come. And what happened to that old covenant? Look at verse 13. In that he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What happened to that old covenant? It has vanished away. It is obsolete. No longer should you go back to that old covenant trying to work its regulations. Now why does it say though that it is becoming obsolete? It is ready to vanish away. Well, it's because this was written before 70 AD, before the complete destruction of the temple and before the complete uh, disillusionment of the old covenant. Oftentimes we think when the new covenant came, the old covenant was immediately just reneged, but that's not how it happened. There was a transition between old covenant and new covenant, and people were to come over from that old covenant into the new covenant. So people that were already saved on that old covenant needed to hear the gospel and transition from old to new. And that transition completed around 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. But we, on the other side of this, the old covenant is gone. It's destroyed. I'll tell you a, a really sad story. I remember one time I was working at the mall, and there was the people that wanted this little uh, stand in the mall. And I was talking to them, and I discovered that they were Jews. And I said to them, probably influenced by some, some bad doctrine, but I said to them, wow, this is amazing. It's so nice to meet the people of God. Couldn't have been more of a false statement. Certainly there's some truth to that, the historic people of God. Some truth of that in Romans chapter 11. But here I am a Christian, the true people of God, the true Jew, telling a person who most likely did not believe in God at all, a child of Satan, that he is the true people of God. No. That old covenant 
it's been done away. It's obsolete, and it's been replaced with a new and better covenant based on better promises, based on a better mediator, Jesus Christ, which accomplishes everything that an old covenant could never accomplish. And so what we must do is not go back to that, those old types and shadows and not seek to be justified by the law. But for most of us, we don't come back. We don't actually have a Jewish background. So our temptation, when we want to go back to something, it isn't back to Judaism, but it's a back to paganism. But it's the same idea. There's nothing there. We've escaped the elementary principles and the elementary spirits of this world. And so we need to keep pressing forward into Christ and receiving all of his benefits and all the promises that he has given us and not go back and look at these old elementary ways and think, maybe it was better back then. Maybe before I got saved, it was better. Maybe Egypt, with its onions and leeks, were actually offering something better. No, that Egypt is only leading you to hell, but Christ is leading you to eternal life in Jesus Christ. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you that you have given us a better covenant based on better promises, that your covenant, this new covenant, is better than the old covenant, and it's definitely better than the ways of the world, that we have nothing to return to, that we have left the city of destruction, and we're headed to the eternal city. Lord, I pray that if there be anyone here that still is on the fence, or even worse, that they are heading full throttle into the sea of destruction, that they would consider what you have said, that your covenant is a better covenant, a better way, that you have given us life and life more abundantly, that they would run to you and be forgiven. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.